Uh, y'all, I'm going to tell you what, this may be the hardest sermon I've ever, I've ever tried to put together. Um, because I don't know where God has taken me with this one, to be honest with you. I knew, I knew what scripture I was going to preach on early. I knew, I knew the scripture I was going to use. And I started, and I started, actually wrote the sermon very, very early, um, several, a number of days ago. Um, but I felt like this morning God put me, put something else on my heart. And wanted me to kind of take it in a slightly different direction and, and, and throw some different applications uh, on it. Which sounded really good at 5 o'clock this morning. And I don't know if it sounds so good now. <laughs> so, y'all just bear with me because I don't know where God's going with this. And I don't know if this is even, you know, I, I have no doubts that he wants me to preach on this, on this particular subject, this particular topic, this particular um, uh, scripture. Uh, but it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one, and uh, I just y'all y'all trust me, and and uh, and uh, just let's just all believe that God is doing what 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 he, what he wants us to do. Y'all can go ahead and turn if you want to um, over to Exodus chapter twenty-two uh, if you have your Bible. If you do not have your Bible, by the way, there are new Bibles in front of you, a new international versions, which is the version that I generally preach out of. Um, so it's going to be Exodus chapter twenty-two. And what I want to do, I'm very careful about these types of messages because I don't want anybody to interpret a message that's not there. I don't think that pastors should preach partisan politics. In other words, I don't believe that pastors should ever even give the appearance that they endorse a particular candidate or a particular party or a particular secular ideology. I think that's wrong. And I think to some degree when they do that, they will be judged by that at some point, to some degree by God. I do, however, believe that we are called to speak into social issues because the Bible, just as it informs our personal beliefs and our personal behaviors, it also informs our social beliefs. And if we're going to be consistent in applying scripture to our social and our political beliefs, we got we to gotta dig into the Bible. We got to dig into the Word of God. In case you don't know, there is an election coming up in about nine days, if you haven't heard. And if, you, if you're not one of the 6,000 people in Coffee County who have voted thus far, I've got some things for us to consider now and in the future because I think God has some things for us to consider that maybe we're not, that maybe we're not applying. <laughs> Here's the thing. If you consider yourself to be a political conservative, the Bible should offend you. If you consider yourself to be a political liberal, the Bible should offend you. We should not, and y'all have heard me say this before, we should not, when it comes to our social beliefs, be able to fall neatly into either one of these neat little categories that people so often want to divide themselves in. We should not be informed. We should not live our lives based solely on secular ideologies. If we're going to faithfully apply the Word of God to every aspect of our life. It would be impossible to do that. Impossible. I'm not here to tell you who to vote for today. I've told you I don't think pastors should do that. 
But what I want to do and what I do every day is I want to challenge me. I want to challenge me and I want to challenge you to approach these things, not through a secular lens, not through a secular lens, but through the lens of Jesus and through the lens of Holy Scripture and the will of God. Because the Bible speaks to social issues. The Bible don't tell us who to vote for, but it speaks to social issues just as much as it speaks to personal morality. Over and over and over and over again. We can't ignore that. We can't overlook that. At the end of the day, however, this message is less about politics and more about what we are going to allow to form us in general. That's part of it. Surely that's going to be part of it. But this message at the end of the day, at the very foundation, is about what are we going to allow to form us, to form our personal beliefs, our personal behaviors, and yeah, our social and political beliefs. Because here's what I see. I see Christians on the left, and I see Christians on the right being informed and living out those types of things because they are being formed by more, they are being formed more by their social media feeds, which already cater to their personal opinions, or their preferential cable news channel. Whether you're on the left or the right, they, we, are, we are being formed more by those things just like the rest of the world, than we are by the Bible, by the will of God. Exodus 22, 21 through 27. Exodus 22, verses 21 through 27. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, they will cry out to me, and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will come, become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, the only covering your neighbor has. I'm sorry. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? And when they cry out to me, I will hear, <clears throat> for I am compassionate. The word of God for the people of God. One thing you need to understand from the get-go, from the absolute get-go, is who this passage was written to. It was not written to an individual. It was written to a group of people like so many other passages and books that we find in the Bible. A lot of times, most of the time, I would argue, I think, most of us approach the Bible and we look at it from an individual aspect. Okay, this is informing me. This is written to me. This is written to me, a singular person. And this is written, written to inform my, my personal beliefs, my personal behavior, which may very well be true and oftentimes is. 
However, there are plenty of scriptures, and we've talked about this time and time again, that are written to groups of people. This one in particular was written to the Hebrew people. It was written to God's people. It was written to what we can, would consider the church. Also, it was written to the Hebrew people as a nation. Okay, so we got a lot of stuff going on there. This is how you're to treat people as a nation, not just as an individual, as a nation, as my people, as the people of God. So let's understand that from the get-go. This is one of the primary themes in Exodus, is God's justice, God's restorative, loving sense of justice, particularly towards the disadvantaged, particularly towards those on the margins. The people of the Hebrew people would have understood this, and we'll get to that in just a second. But God does care how we treat people as individuals, as churches, as nations. I think we've talked several times about how God judged nations in the Old Testament. It wasn't just for their personal morality. That was part of it. But it was also because of the way they mistreated, ignored, or oppressed certain groups of people. And that's what we find out right here. Something else I'd like to point out to you. You see, identifies very specific people in these passages. Very specific. Foreigners. The Hebrew people would have been very open, very aware what it meant for God to say, don't oppress the foreigner. Because the Hebrew people were oppressed in Egypt. Harshly. I don't think we can overstate how bad the Hebrew people were treated by the Egyptians. I think we like to glide over some of the harshness of that. We're not just talking forced labor. We're talking real oppression. We're talking real slavery. We're talking real abuse. We're talking real rape. We're talking real racism. That's what these Hebrew people went through in Egypt. So they would they would understand what it was like to be in a foreign land. And this would probably hit them right between the eyes. Anyway, foreigners, orphans, widows, and the poor. Foreigners, orphans, widows, and the poor. Foreigners, orphans, widows, and the poor are mentioned specifically in these scriptures. What might amaze you a little bit more is how often these four groups of people are mentioned in scripture. God clearly has a special place in his heart for these particular groups of people. That's very clear. Let me give you a couple examples. Zechariah chapter 7 verse 9 through 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless. Nor the foreigner. Nor the poor. Deuteronomy 10 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner giving him food and clothing. Ezekiel 16, 49. Y'all remember the story of Sodom, right? Y'all remember the destruction of Sodom in, in Genesis? That story, we're all familiar with that. Ezekiel 16, 49 says, This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She had pride. She had excess of food and prosperous ease. But she did not aid the poor and the needy. Sodom, a nation, by the way, not individuals. Psalm 46, 9, the Lord watches over foreigners and he upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Folks, I could literally spend the next hour doing this. 
quoting scriptures that specifically address these four groups of people and how God expects us as individuals, churches, nations to treat these folks. Is there any doubt about this? Seriously, I could quote scripture for you for the next 45 minutes to an hour. It is that prevalent throughout the Bible. It's that prevalent. I think there's reasons. Um, let's just go through them all. Let's go, let's go through them all. Real, I'll do this as quickly as possible, folks. I've got about eight pages of notes. I'm not trying to kill you. <clears throat> but let's, let's take a look at those four groups. Let's take a look at those four groups as, as quickly as I possibly can. Let's take a look at, at, God, at one of the most difficult ones to talk about in this political season. Let's talk about foreigners. Let's talk about this call that we have to embrace foreigners and to love and to not oppress, those types of things. Pretty hot-button issue right now, isn't it? <clears throat> here's my opinion. Here's, here's, why God, here's why I think God specifically addresses this one, and this is strictly my opinion. Uh, and I'll try to tell you guys when, when, when I'm throwing my opinion out there and not, and not something factual. This is my opinion. I think, I think God is very aware of the fact that we as people, we have a sinful disposition to what you might call tribalism. We have a sinful disposition to what you might call tribalism. And that's a modern word. You're not going to find that in the Bible. But here's how, here's how the, here's how the uh, dictionary defines what tribalism is. Tribalism is, is the behavior and the attitudes that stem from strong loyalty to one's own tribe and social group. In other words, God is perfectly aware, in my opinion, of our sinful tendency to prefer people who are like us. Our sinful tendency to, uh, to prefer people who are like us, whether it's because I'm white, whether it's because I'm black, whether it's because I'm rich, I'm poor, I live here, I live in this neck of the, wo this, this neck of the woods, whatever. Social, people who are on the so same social level, ethnic level, etc., God is perfectly aware that we have a natural tendency, and I call it a sinful tendency, to be like that, to do, to do that. But let's be perfectly honest about this. To favor another particular group over another is nothing less than sin. To favor a group, one particular group over another is nothing less than sin. I think that's why God specifically calls this out in us and with us throughout the Bible. Because it's a strong, strong calling. It's a strong, strong sin for us. Let me ask you guys this. How many foreigners, how many immigrants do you know personally by name? How many foreigners, how many immigrants do we invite over to our homes? I'm saying that to make you feel guilty. I just give, I'm trying to give you something to think about, to give myself something to think about. God has a special place in His heart because He knows that we have that sinful tendency. Here's something I want to quote to you, and again, this isn't a this isn't a political statement. It's just something I want you to think about. Back in 2009, a group called the Pew Research Center noted that the United States was poised to admit a maximum number of 18,000 foreign refugees, many of whom were Christians, into or would have been Christians, into the United States this year. Obviously, because of the coronavirus, that didn't happen. However, had we allowed that number into the United States, that would have been the lowest number of refugees that were allowed into our country since 1980. 
foreigners, particularly refugees, my goodness. Do we even know what a refugee is anymore? Do we even care? Over the last several years, refugee settlements in the United States have dropped to historic lows at a time when the number of refugees worldwide has reached the highest level since World War II. Why is this? And where is our Christian voice in these matters? If we're going to give voice to abortion and pro-life issues, why are we not some of the loudest voices giving voices, loudest people, loudest groups, giving voices to our care and our concern for refugees and for foreigners? There's an inconsistent pattern there. This is what I'm talking about, that we can't be left or right when it comes to our social beliefs and practices. How does that make you feel? That number that I just quoted, that fact that I just quoted, how does that make you feel? That's something to ask yourself. Again, this isn't politics, folks. This is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were once foreigners in Egypt. We should lead the way. We should lead the way in compassion and concern for the welfare of the foreigners among us. Secondly, we take a look at widows and orphans. Oh, we're good. We're good. And uh, we actually talked several weeks ago about, out at Oak Grove about widows and orphans. And uh, mostly, I know my wife was there and probably John and, and Lois. But I want to bring this back to you guys because I thought it's, it's, again, it's such a big concern for God and it's such a big matter for us. Clearly, they fall in, again, they fall into those groups that are mentioned time and time and time and time again. James, the author of the book of James, who is uh, traditionally believed to be the half-brother of Jesus. I like James. I like the book of James a lot. It's one of my favorite because I, I think that growing up with Christ, James probably knew uh, who he was and he probably knew his, his beliefs and his teachings better than anybody, in my opinion. But anyway, in his book, James writes this, Religion that God accepts as faultless or as undefiled is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless or undefiled is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress. And you say, well, I care. You know, I care. I care about, about people. I care about those types of things. But do we really? Do we really? Do we, beyond a personal level, do we care about these things? Because that's when it gets hard. I want to point something else out to you. Most people believe, most historians believe, that Joseph, the father of Jesus, passed away prior to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There's a, there's a general consensus among historians and theologians on that belief. Joseph passed away prior to Jesus starting his ministry, which would have left Jesus what? Say it. An orphan. <laughs> would have left Mary a widow. Jesus also had several, uh, several brothers and sisters, by the way. I think about at least, at least six that we know of. So they would have known what it was like. Mary would have known what it was like to be treated as a widow. Jesus, his brothers, sisters would have known what it was like to be treated as an orphan. Because again, 
and I, I didn't mention this part, but back in that culture back then, anybody who was without one parent was considered to be an orphan. So they would have been very familiar with, 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 what, it, with what it felt like. Just an interesting note, you know, Mary was a single mother. And uh, again, James and Jesus would have known very well what it was like to be treated in that particular society, either kindly or poorly. And you say, you know, again, you know, I care about those things, Jerry, of course I do. But here's a few facts I'd like to throw out there to you. Currently, there are approximately 143 million orphans in the world today. One million orphan children are trafficked annually in the sex trade. Eight million orphans are currently working as slaves. Over two and a half million currently have HIV AIDS. I ask you again, how are we doing as Christ's body in the world? Is our religion pure and undefiled? Do our personal beliefs extend into our social practices and those things that we support, those things that we advocate for? What about widows? Again, Mary was a widow. So James would have known firsthand the hardships and the struggles that she faced economically, socially, practically, physically. Here's a modern testimony. I'm going to step up here and read this to you. It's such a great, such a great writing. Here's a modern testimony um, from an article in Christianity, Christianity Today several years ago. And uh, the lady writing this obviously is, is a widow and she's speaking to this. This is what it's like. This is what it's like in the heart, the minds, and the eyes of those who are, who are widowed. She writes, I am, I am part of the fastest growing demographic in the United States. We are targeted by new home builders and we are surveyed by designers. We are a lucrative niche for health and beauty products and financial planners invite us to dinner. It's no wonder that the marketers are after us. 800,000 join our ranks every year. Who are we? We are the invisible among you, the widows. Studies show that widows lose 75% of their friendship network when they lose a spouse. 60% of us experience serious health issues in the first year. One third of us meet the criteria for clinical depression in the first month after one spouse, and half of us remain clinically depressed a year later. Most experience financial decline. One pastor described us by saying we move from the front row of the church to the back and then out the door. We move from serving and singing in the choir to solitude and silent sobbing, and then on to find the place where we belong. It's interesting to note that in today's scripture, God says, that he hears the cries of the widows and the orphans and that he has compassion towards them. Here's that other part that we don't like. Was there something unsettling, by the way, that y'all read in that scripture? Can you think that far back? Something about God killing, killing your... That, is that a little unsettling to you guys? Interestingly enough, he says he's not just compassionate. He adds that punishment for abuse of these groups and also certain destruction. Let's again try to think beyond the individual level. Think of this on a communal level because this, again, is who this scripture is written to. Communities, not just us as individuals. Certainly these are personal values, but how are we doing this as larger communities, churches, cities, nations? Pure and undefiled religion. Is to look after widows in their distress. Is our religion pure and undefiled? And lastly, we'll talk about the poor. This uh, going back to going back to uh, twenty-five through twenty-seven. 
and I'll do my best to wrap up relatively soon. This, is, this, is, this sounds strange to us. Going back to 25, 27, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because the cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? And when they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. All this stuff about cloaks and, and lending and stuff like that is probably really odd to our, to our modern ears. But the lesson here and the reality of it continue to apply. Because just as the most marginalized and the most needy were mistreated and taken advantage of back then, so are they now. This plays out in our individual lives and it also plays out within our communities and our, and our structures. Folks, I'm going to give you one example and you, you can agree with me or not agree with me. But as most of you know, I spent several years working in law enforcement and... Uh, I had plenty of experience. The only thing that made me think about this is, is yesterday or the day before me and Sandy watched a, watched a movie about a trial. But anyway, I got plenty of exposure to the criminal justice system. Plenty of it. Plenty of exposure to criminal justice and the, and the judicial system. And let me tell you this. Court ain't what it looks like on TV. Court ain't what it looks like on the movies. Let me tell you what court looks like. First thing that happens is a person gets arrested for whatever charge that may be. And don't misunderstand anything that I say here. If a person commits a crime, I believe that they, they, have, they have to pay the consequences. No doubt. And I don't, that's, a, that's a belief of all of us. Um, person is arrested. And then there are, several, there are several other processes that they go through before actually going to court. Here's the fact of the matter. Most people don't go to trial. Most people don't go to trial. All the stuff you see on television and movies about trials, that's a bunch of nonsense. I, don't, I wish I actually knew, knew for certain what that figure was, but the vast majority of people who are arrested never go to trial. Why? Because they're poor. Because they're poor. They can't afford lawyers. So they get appointed lawyers. Lawyers who have large, 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 large caseloads. That lawyer don't want to go to a trial. He, is over, he or she is overwhelmed. What they do is they get these men and these women to plead their cases out, whether they're guilty or not, a lot of times. And that's just the reality of where we are. It's the reality of our system. They try to convince the defendants to play these things out. And they're not always black and white, by the way. These cases are not always black and white. There's very oftentimes a lot of gray area, a lot of nuance. But these are folks who are poor, and they'll do anything that they can do to avoid incarceration. So they plead out, most of them. For no other reason than they're poor. That's wrong. Where are our Christian voices in these matters? Well, they're criminals, Jerry. Well, if I'm not mistaken, Matthew 25 says that God says that when you visited me in prison, when you visited in prison, you were visiting me. Just as you did to one of the least of these, you did also to me. Where are Christian voices? Here's another neat little statistic for you. We got 4% of the world's population. The United States has 4% of the world's population. Of everybody that's incarcerated throughout the globe, what percentage do you think we account for? 75. Three quarters of people who are incarcerated throughout the world are incarcerated in the U.S. You can't tell me that our crime is so much different 
than other countries. That's a statistic that speaks to a, to a systemic problem. And a lot of it has to do with poverty. Where are our voices? Where are our Christian voices that are so loud, so loud on issues of morality, which I completely back 100%. Where are we on these? This is just a glimpse of God's justice. This is a glimpse in these scriptures of God's justice. Restorative justice. We have a very skewed idea of what justice is a lot of times. We think of justice as punishment. And uh, sometimes that's true, but that's not the only justice that's spoken about in the Bible. Justice that God primarily talks about is restorative justice. Justice that God talks about in the Bible is Bible that calls for fairness. Justice that calls for equality. Justice that calls to fix or to right something that was wrong. That's what he's given the Hebrew people in these scriptures from Exodus. That's what he's talking about in these literally dozens of scriptures that address the foreigner, the poor, the orphan, and the widow. These things that reflect the kingdom of God. So, who do I vote for, Pastor? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. I can't tell you that. I would never, ever, ever stand behind a pulpit and tell anybody that. But here's the advice that I give you. Again, if you're not, if you're not part of the 6,000 or so folks in Coffee County, including myself, who have already voted. My advice is, number one, get your eyes off of your social media. Take a fast from your social media. Because social media influences your already held and skewed opinions and your own personal preferences. We all know that. All those things that you like, everything that shows up in your new feeds just reflects the stuff that you already believe. Turn it off. Whatever cable news you watch take a fast from it turn it off because here's the thing just as social media we're going to watch whatever cable news affirms our already held opinions whether you're on the left or right you're going to watch cnn or you're going to watch fox don't let that stuff influence your social opinions your social behaviors your social beliefs turn that nonsense off and open up holy scripture if you want to be influenced on what your social view should be, open the scripture. And not the television, not Twitter, not Facebook. John Wesley said this concerning, the, concerning elections, and I think it's pretty doggone good advice. He said that I met with those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them, number one, to vote for the person that they judged most worthy. Number two, I advise them to speak no evil of the person that they voted against. And number three, I advise them to take care of their spirits, take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. And I think that's pretty, pretty good advice. I'd like to say a blessing over you guys and, and, and over myself before we, before we wrap up here today. This is something that was, it's a beautiful, beautiful blessing. And it was something that was written by a, uh, by a Benedictine nun. And I think it speaks really well to, uh, to the scriptures that we were focusing on today. May God bless us with discontent and easy answers. May God bless us with discontent, with half-truths, 
superficial relationships so that we may from deep within our hearts may God bless us with anger and injustice oppression abuse and exploitation of people so that we will work for justice equality and for peace May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, so that we may reach out our hands to comfort them and to change their pain to joy. And may God bless us with the foolishness to think that we can make a difference in this world so that we may do the things which others tell us cannot be done. These blessings are ours, not for the asking, but for the giving from the one who wants to be our companion, our God who lives and reigns with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen.